You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Jeremy Bash, who's a founding and managing director of Beacon Global Strategies, LLC. He is the only Obama administration official to have served as chief of staff in two national security departments or agencies. First as chief of staff to the director of the CIA from 2009 to 2011, and most recently as chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense from 2011 to 2013. Prior to that, from 2004 to 2008, he served in a variety of roles on Capitol Hill, including chief counsel to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and as a senior national security advisor to Congresswoman Jane Harman. He's a recipient of the Department of Defense's Distinguished Public Service Medal, the CIA Director's Award, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, and the Donovan Award from the National Clandestine Service. So welcome, Jeremy, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today on SpyCast. Great to be here, Vince. So anyone, you're, relative, you're, you're in my age bracket, so it's weird to ask you, you know, you've had a long career in intelligence and national security, but whenever I have somebody who's had a very successful career, I want to ask the question, was this always the plan? Was this something you're thinking about in college or in law school, about I want to turn these degrees into working in the national security field? No, it really wasn't part of any grand plan when I started uh, my professional career. Um, at college, I was very interested in politics and government, and I was very focused on foreign policy. I was in college at Georgetown during the first Gulf War, uh, during the time when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and in August of, uh, of 1990, there was a big question looming in Washington as to whether or not the United States would get involved in this faraway conflict between two countries in the Gulf that most Americans didn't really know much about. And I began to look at the Middle East and under- try to understand for myself exactly what was at stake. I had spent some time in Israel prior to uh, going to college, and I was very fascinated with both the inter-Arab dynamic, the Sunni-Shia issues, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issues, and the general approach of the United States after the Cold War, how the United States was going to be operating in the Middle East. And I began to try to learn as much as I could about national security in college. But I have to say, um, it really wasn't uh, until I began in law school looking at some other issues, including issues pertaining to counterterrorism. And this was at a time when 
most people didn't know what Al-Qaeda was. Of right. course, this was before 9-11. But in the 90s, I began to study under uh, Phil Hyman at Harvard Law School. Phil had been head of the criminal division uh, and head of – and also deputy attorney general. But had taken a particular interest in the intersection between criminal law and national security, and in particular how to use the authorities and capabilities of the United States against transnational terrorist organizations, which, again, up until you know, sort of the post-Cold War era, many people did not focus on, even though, of course, we have been seeing international terrorism blossom right. as early as the early 1970s with the PLO and the uh, PFLPGC and some of the organizations that were trying to get on the international stage uh, in, under the banner of the Palestinian cause. And I was interested in it, and I was interested in counterterrorism. And so in law school, I did some work in that domain. Um, I went, then went to clerk for a federal judge. And interestingly, that federal judge, uh, Judge Brinkema in the Eastern District of Virginia, was uh, one of the judges who had m- one of the most active national security dockets. That courthouse, because it's in Northern Virginia, and it's the courthouse most people know recently because it held the trial of Paul Manafort, uh, in the context of the uh, investigation into activities surrounding Russia. But it's been the courthouse where Aldrich Ames was tried. It's been the courthouse where many uh, spies and, and espionage cases have been uh, conducted. And it's also the, ca- the courthouse where and it was the judge ultimately that, that tried Zacharias Musawi, who some believed was essentially the 12th hijacker. And I clerked for Judge Brinkman for a year in which we worked on a number of national security cases. And then when my clerkship ended, it was 1999, and the presidential campaign of 2000 was gearing up. It had been the end of a, the Clinton administration, and so we knew that there was going to be a new president. And I was very interested in Al Gore because Al Gore had a career in Congress that really focused on national security issues. He had served on right. the Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee. And so I set off in an effort to try to work for his presidential campaign working on national security issues. And that's that's what I did. And I think that job as the foreign and defense policy issues director for the Gore presidential campaign, I was working out of Nashville, Tennessee, really kind of set the stage for uh, my work after 9-11. Let me ask you, you've, you've had a career in CIA, a DOD, working NATSET law, you working for Congress, not only for an individual member, but also for a committee. Things have evolved certainly since 9-11, but you've been working during that whole time as well. For those who are thinking about a career in this field, if they're undergrads or grad students or even early career professionals who don't know if they're doing exactly what they want to be doing, is there one or two pieces of advice that you could give to end up where you are right now or kind of to get a long-term career in this field? Yeah. I mean, everybody has a different path. Um, I think at some point you kind of have to decide whether or not you want to commit to a full-time long career working either in the foreign service or the intelligence uh, community as a as a professional conducting operations or even doing analysis but where you you and your family might be moving around a little bit and you might be including moving overseas and that's the same for people looking at a career in the military even if they're thinking about getting a commission in college or ROTC or what have you um, so there's kind of that path, and, and that path is an amazing path, and all of my friends and colleagues who have gone on that path have amazing stories about it and experiences. I've, I took kind of, I would say, a little bit of a different path, which was I, I kind of came through it more through the policy realm. And just to pick up a little bit of, the, of the how I got from there to here, um, 
after I worked on a presidential campaign, uh, obviously that campaign um, ended with a tie. And, uh, and I, I, because I was a lawyer, although I had not practiced law at all, they sent me down to the Florida recount activities down in 2000 in Florida. And, and that was a heck of an experience working for 36 days, sleeping on the floor, eating out of vetting machines. Um, and I remember they sent me down to the Leon County Courthouse in Tallahassee to file the actual litigation that was going to contest the presidential election on behalf of Al Gore. But I got to tell you, Vince, once your first case that you ever file with your own hands in a courthouse is the first contest of a presidential election (laughs) in U.S. history, it's kind of all downhill from there. So um, even though we we lost ultimately in the Supreme Court, and I did go back and practice law at an international law firm for a couple of years, my heart wasn't totally into it. And of course, while I was at that law firm working in Washington, the events of 9-11 happened. And you know, I was only a few miles from, obviously, the the, the crash of the Pentagon. Um, everybody in downtown Washington that day, you know, remembers exactly where they were and what happened. And we wheeled these big televisions into the law firm conference room and all watched uh, horrifically as the towers fell. And I just knew that I wanted to get back into that realm of, of focusing on national security. And so I applied for a job um, Again, as a lawyer, but not having a lot of intelligence experience as chief counsel on the Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee. And I, I used to joke, I didn't know much about intelligence other than I was for it. Right. <laughs> and, and interestingly, um, and, and th- this is where people, I think, kind of have to look at the trajectory of these issues. But what was happening in the post-9-11 era was that intelligence was coming onto the front page in a way it never had before. So you had not only issues about the intelligence failure that led to 9-11, which was, was of course, supreme in the formation of the 9-11 Commission. But you also had issues like the Iraq WMD question, and was that was the intelligence sound that contributed to the decision to uh, invade Iraq mm-hmm. um, in 2003. On top of that, you had activities by intelligence agencies, both here at home in terms of NSA, but also abroad in terms of CIA, that was getting a lot of scrutiny by Congress, by NGOs, by outside organizations, as some information about that inevitably began to bleed out. And so intelligence was coming onto the front page. And I think as a result, the members of the intelligence committees wanted people who had a little bit of an outside perspective, someone who had worked in the political realm, someone who had worked in the legal realm. And so I was a kind of a good fit for Jane Harmon, who at the time was ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee. And I would just say, so just to get back to the initial question, which is, you know, how do you get into a position where you can help become a leader of the intelligence community? Um, one route is to become a career professional and to do that and that requires, frankly, a lot of bravery, a lot of heroism, a lot of financial self-sacrifice. Another way to do it is to try to figure out, you know, what am I doing now? I'm a lawyer or I'm a policy person um, or I'm working in some other dimension, even in private business. But I think I have something to offer. Is there a way in? And, and really, the intelligence agencies don't ha- hire laterally. And so one interim step often is the Hill. And I, I encourage people to think about jobs working on Capitol Hill for members of Congress who have an interest in national right. security issues. Well, let me ask you about that. Because I think anyone under the age of 25 now looks at Hipsy as this political mess. Yep. Uh, but at the time, I mean, that's never, traditionally, that's n- almost never been the case. I mean, going back to when, when it was the Pike era in the 70s, mm-hmm. but for two decades or so, certainly in the 80s and the 90s, it was a professional committee that put politics aside. It had always kind of risen above the rest. And I think in this case, that, that certainly was true. What was the chief counsel's job at the time? Because uh, this is when I would think, this, I mean, the staff's always 
professional. But mm-hmm. there's a time when the members were trying to be a little, certainly after 9-11, be professional as well. So where did you play, what role did you play within the staff of, of, of Hipsy? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great question. And, and I, I, I certainly understand the perspective of folks who say, you know, it's horrible now, it, the good old days were great, and let's return to the good old days. I mean, that's partially true, but, but there, there have been moments in the history of the intelligence oversight committees in which there has been a lot of partisan tension. Um, by the way, the, the committees are political, and I don't mean partisan, and there's a difference between political and partisan. Right. The committees are political in that they have to understand the way power is deployed. They have to understand the differences between the political branches in the United States, and that's a kind of a term of art in the law that references the executive branch and the congressional branch, you know, excluding the judiciary, um, those branches that are elected by the people, mm-hmm. if you will. And it, you have to have a, an understanding of, of how a lot of stakeholders play into the intelligence b- business, including the media. And so when, when issues, as I referenced, are on the front pages, what happens to a member of the Intelligence Committee is that they go back and meet with their, say, Republican conference or their Democratic caucus, and their members are yelling at them saying, you know, why the heck didn't you know about this? And you say, well, I did know about this. And they say, well, why don't you tell us? And you say, because I couldn't. And then it's kind of a whole discussion about how to enhance and strengthen and increase oversight when things are spilling out into the press. Right. And that's a very difficult job. And so... Um, and so, you know, there have been moments where these issues have flared up and members have tried to use the Intelligence Committee work to conduct oversight and sometimes really to take on policy decisions by the incumbent president. So just as an example, um, you, you know, you referenced the Church and Pike Committee hearings back in the 1970s that really established many of the reforms we see today, the establishment of the committees, the establishment of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the establishment of FISA, the right. actual regime governing domestic surveillance, some certain, certainly some curbs on the activities of the CIA, including domestically. Um, you know, those were all efforts by Congress to try to say, hey, we didn't like what, say, Nixon did, or we didn't like what J. Edgar Hoover did, or we didn't like what some specific um, leaders of CIA did. And, and you saw that in Iran-Contra in the 1980s, where there were pretty partisan tensions between the uh, members of the Democratic Party and the members of the Republican Party over Iran-Contra and the activities of, of President Reagan um, in the Arms for Hostages and Boland Amendment and Nicaragua situations. Um, and then so, too, after 9-11, uh, I think in some ways the country rallied together and there was a lot of unity and harmony. But pretty clearly after the Iraq War and President Bush had invoked intelligence, there was going to be some concern by Democrats about how that was used. My job as the chief counsel was really to look at whether or not intelligence activities of the United States were legal, whether they were consistent with American foreign policy, and whether they were proper, and whether they they adhered to the law and sort of the principles of proper intelligence uh, actions. Um, One example of something that I worked on quite a bit was the FISA reform legislation. So if you'll recall, in the mid-2000s, there were some revelations that NSA had, quote, and I'll simplify it and overstate it for dram- dramatic effect, that NSA had, quote, been spying on Americans. The Stellar Wind program. Exactly. And- well, when you actually peel that back and look at it in all of its piece parts, it was a fairly complicated set of activities that NSA had undertaken. NSA and their lawyers believed that the activities were legal. NSA in, uh, involved the participation of some private sector entities, including some of the big telecommunications companies, because, of course, so much of our communications you know, ride on that, that telecom infrastructure. And, and the lawyers, both at the Justice Department and at the NSA, 
scrutinized it and made adjustments to those activities and then ultimately settled on a set of, set of activities. Well, when this was revealed in the, in the, I think, the New York Times, initially it was characterized as you know, spying on Americans. And the intelligence committees were a little bit blindsided because some of these activities had only been briefed to the, quote, gang of eight, mm-hmm. the chairman and ranking members of the intelligence committees. And so, you know, as the rest of the staff and the rest of the members got into this issue and we got briefings, and I remember I went down to a briefing with Dick Cheney and then NSA Director Mike Hayden down in the White House Situation Room, in which they were going to, for the first time, discuss the program, both what it did, what it did not do, and also the legal basis, but also how it had contributed to the efforts to uh, conduct surveillance of terrorist organizations. And I think what we realized in the oversight there was that there were some good things in the program that were legal, that were proper, that were useful, but there was a heck of a lot that was either on the line um, or, or was contrary to the spirit of the law. There were some things, in my view, that were downright um, against the law. And there were also some things that really may have been legal but really weren't that effective at actually right. gaining intelligence uh, over, uh, insight into plots and intentions of terrorist organizations. And so we, we began a process to reshape the law, and that led to the FISA amendments statutes of 2007 and 2008. Well, you brought up 2008, so let me transition to there, because in 08, you were a member of the Obama-Biden transition team. And I want to ask you about Obama as a student, because he'd only been a senator at this point for about three and a half years. He, didn't, he wasn't on a lot of the NATSEC-based committees. You know, he was a state rep or state senator from, from Illinois. How, how good was he at kind of internalizing this kind of national security intelligence world uh, was there a high learning curve, or was he somebody that picked up on this quickly? I guess the second, the second part of this question is you would think Joe Biden would have been very good at this with his history on foreign relations and other places. Was he a significant asset in kind of helping President Obama become someone that could actually make decisions like he did in 2011 for the bin Laden raid? Yes. Uh, I think you've put your finger on two dynamics that existed back then, uh, and I— you know, in all candor, I wasn't the person who was at their right elbow. I mean, I was several people removed from them. And so this is somewhat of kind of a reflection of the way I saw things unfold. And from the perspective of my boss at the time, Secretary Leon Panetta at the time, who was, you know, the, the nominee to be CIA director and then ultimately was confirmed by the Senate um, in February of 2009. But first, you know, in terms of I'll take Biden first. I mean, Joe Biden had been chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He had been every major capital, visited with every major U.S. embassy and knew all the kind of key international players and really, I think, understood the way the national security apparatus worked in the United States. I remember during the transition, so just a few weeks after the election in November 2008, there were the horrendous attacks in Mumbai, India by Lashkari Taiba. And I was a staffer on the intelligence transition. I was providing regular updates to the transition leadership about activities that that were hot in national security, including the Mumbai attacks later in December. It was Israel's invasion of Gaza and, and the, the, the war uh, between Israel and, 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 and Gaza. And so, um, and so I remember I was providing those updates, and one day I was driving home from the transition, and, uh, and I got a call on my phone. It was Joe Biden calling, and the guy never called me. He'd just been elected vice president of the United States. I didn't even know he knew who I was, yeah. um, and he probably did. And a staffer said, here, Jeremy is tracking this for us. Give him a call. And he asked me a lot of questions about the Lashkari Taiba um, uh, attack, about what we knew, what we didn't know, and and who, you know, inside the U.S. government. And I was, of course, able to point him to the National Counterterrorism Center. You know, who knew the most about this? 
and and that's an example of to show the kind of the granular level of his interest. Right. Um, as far as President Elect Obama, I think you're right. He had not received regular intelligence briefings. He had traveled overseas a couple of times. And, of course, in selecting Secretary Clinton, he was not only choosing someone who had been his political rival to be Secretary of State, but I think he had traveled overseas with her, and he knew her from the Senate, and I think he felt confident and comfortable with her national security bona fides. And so, you know, the three of them, together with Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense, and Leon Panetta, CIA director, and a number of others, they really, I think, brought a lot of professionalism to the early days of the Obama administration. But I think President Obama, you know, his, his natural approach was to be very serious about things, be very studious, to trust the professionals, um, but, to, um, but to question. And I think the uh, president's daily brief sessions that I heard about were very rich. They were detailed. He was, you know, he read the briefings in advance and you kind of didn't need to read it to him or show him pictures. You basically got right into it where he was firing at you pretty tough questions. Um, subject matter experts were sent down to the White House to do deep dives for him on issues like Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iraq, certainly. And, um, and I do think, you know, there was a learning curve in the following sense, which is he had not had a lot of experience with CIA. Um, and so we invited him out early to CIA to meet the professionals there and to really address some of the issues he was going to be confronting, including how to deal with the aftermath of the enhanced interrogation program, which right. he, of course, ended on his first day in office by signing an executive order. But I don't think he really fully understood the full gamut of, of what the program was designed to do um, and, and also how it was viewed out at Langley. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. you about that movement to, to become chief of staff at CIA. Mm -hmm. So you, you follow your, you see kind of Panetta is kind of the guy you've been following for a while at this point, and you will continue to do so. A lot of people won't necessarily understand the role of a chief of staff at mm -hmm. CIA. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of almost the day-to-day -day and then the big picture of what the chief of staff does? Sure. Well, first, I met Secretary Panetta because I was, as I referenced, the intelligence uh, policy staffer on the transition team. And there were some other people there as well, including John Brennan, who ultimately became Deputy National Security Advisor and then CIA Director in his own right. Um, and where John was really looking across all of the intelligence community components for the transition, trying to understand the programs, I was sort of more of the day-to-day -day staffer supporting, providing intel to the leadership and others. But when Leon Panetta showed up, he was somebody else who had you – know, he had served as an intelligence officer in the Army for two years after graduation. He had, as White House Chief of Staff – had obviously access to intelligence and, and was participating in briefings. But he had not really run operations or, or overseen the analytic product uh, process inside the community. 
And by the way, all of the authorities, capabilities, budgets of the IC changed after 9-11. So kind of no area of government changed more while the Democrats were out of power right. than the intelligence community. So all of these people coming back into office um, or into office really were not, I think, read into to the programs and, and what was going on. It was one of the advantages I had because I'd been Democratic chief counsel of the House Intelligence Committee. At least I was sort of halfway in the community right. to some degree and, and certainly had all the clearances and was read in to all of the, the key programs. Um, but Secretary Panetta, after I worked with him for a few weeks on the transition, he said, would you like to be my chief of staff at CIA? And I said to him, I said, um, uh, sir, two conditions. One is um, I'll be more staff than chief because I'm not chief of jack shit at the CIA. <laughs> there are a lot of professionals right. there. There are a lot of people who have run divisions and run components, and we're going to need to listen to them. And I said, likewise, the second condition is I'll go there, but we can't roll in thick with the whole posse of political appointees and other people because Porter Goss had done that. I think it was a bad mistake for mm-hmm. his leadership. So Panetta agreed to those two conditions, actually, and it was, I think, his general approach anyway, which is to fall in on the existing infrastructure. He relied very heavily on Steve Kappas, who, had been the deputy, who was the deputy director of CIA, who had been head of the directorate of operations at the time of the National Clandestine Service. He had been a station chief overseas. He had sort of been one of the most seasoned and decorated uh, case officers in the, in, the, in the agency. And we relied on, on a lot of the other professionals. We brought in some people. We brought in a general counsel that was appointed by the president and a head of congressional affairs and a head of media affairs. But, um, but Panetta relied on the team there. And my job as chief of staff was really to um, oversee his front office to um, manage all of the paper flow to him, uh, all of the decisions that had been made, to sit in on every briefing that he sat in on, to travel everywhere in the world with him to 50 countries, uh, to kind of just be his uh, kind of institutional memory. Remember, boss, you, you were in this meeting, we talked about this, and remember this decision was made, right. to prepare him for every engagement he had downtown at the, at the Situation Room. And then, you know, ultimately, I think the signature thing that I worked on with him, obviously, along with many others, Michael Morell and many others, was the operation uh, to go after bin Laden. And what, what was your role doing that? I mean, particularly saying the same thing you've been talking about now. Is there any kind of difference to your role during the, the bin Laden planning? No, I mean, the only thing that I, I was sort of the guy who sort of just helped coordinate and organize the briefings and discussions. I, I you know, I, I just kept try to keep, along with many others, sort of try to keep the trains moving forward so that the, ne- the team was ready for the next briefing with the director. The director had the information he needed to make decisions. We knew how we were going to be briefing the White House. I, try- I was sort of one of the key liaisons with the White House and the National Security uh, Council on that with Tom Donilon, with Dennis McDonough, with John Brennan um, on, that, on that matter, um, working with folks at, at the Defense Department. I was in the initial briefings when we briefed Admiral McRaven about the possibility that we had found bin Laden and that, that JSOC would have to conduct an operation right. to go in. And, and I attended both of the rehearsals of the operation on Secretary Panetta's behalf. Um, the first one was in the eastern part of the United States. The second one was in the western part of the United States at altitude at night. Um, uh, got a chance to meet the team that, that was going to be going in. Got a chance, along with many other folks from across the IC and, and the DOD, to you know hear the briefing firsthand from the, the ground commander and from the team on what they were going to be doing. Got a chance to meet uh, Cairo, the Belgian Malinois, who's going to be going along on the operation. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, in private moments, I, I was constantly advising Secretary Panetta on how to think about this and how to, um, how to frame it, how to approach it. And then ultimately the big decision he had to make, but he made it himself, was what to recommend to the president of the United States. I wonder, I wonder if your, your, 
your time working with the transition, working with the people at the White House, help that relationship that, you know, that the relationship is this is kind of if you think about this in an objective way, I take politics out of it. I'm not I don't care where you're coming from politically, if you're right or left or Republican, or Democrat. President Obama had to make an incredibly difficult decision to go and, and order that mission into Abbottabad because everyone had different levels of confidence, whether he was there or not. It really came down to right. an average of kind of 50-50 in the end. So was there, and I don't want you to put kind of words in his mouth, was there a, a benefit to having this kind of close-knit relationship between people who had worked at the White House, like Panetta and like yourself, and CIA? Sometimes there is a gulf separating what happens in 1600 Pennsylvania and Langley, because there isn't a personal relationship. Did you find that beneficial? Well, I certainly think that Secretary Panetta, again, then we called him Director Panetta, right. had enormous, towering credibility, really, uh, inside our government and on Capitol Hill. And, and I think everybody knew that then-Director Panetta was going to be exercising supremely sound judgment. So there was a lot of confidence in his leadership there was also confidence in the professionals at CIA because this, you know, we, we initially brought the intelligence to the White House in August or September of 2010. In fact, I think we were briefed not we were briefed on the intelligence about Ab- the Abbottabad compound in August of 2010, and then we we devised a, a series of meetings to first brief Tom Donilon, the National Security Advisor, and of course, you know, at that time we um we didn't know really the extent to which we were going to have a cadence of briefings with the white house it obviously sped up pretty quickly but i do think to some degree the president but more the the national security team at the nsc including tom donnellan they appreciated knowing that they could pick up the phone at any moment call yeah. me call secretary panetta and and that they'd kind of get a a straight answer and that cia was fully on their team and not that they would have any reason to doubt that but it is it is a, a unique um, aspect of the intelligence community that's unique among other departments and agencies in our government. And it's designed this way specifically so, which is you have one or two uh, or count them on one hand number of quote-unquote presidential appointees at these agencies, but the rest are career professionals. And, and so if you're the kind of president who needs to know that your people are there – you're not going to really have that warm, fuzzy feeling all the time right. with the intelligence agency. But we want it that way. That's exactly the way we want it because these agencies have to be kind of sort of a half step or maybe a whole step outside of the other political departments and agencies. You're not there to carry out any political agenda. Right. You're there to give the president the God's honest truth about what's going on. And sometimes you got to tell him things he doesn't want to hear. Sometimes you got to tell him things that actually conflict and directly contradict U.S. foreign policy objectives. You were read in on the intel. Where was your level of confidence going into the the Abbottabad conversations? So, um, I was uh, I was a huge bull on this. I, I was really confident, and I I in hindsight, I you know whatever. But but sometimes I've doubted whether the, my my whole confidence was was totally um, well placed, given sort of there were real gaps in our knowledge, but. I, I listened to and really trusted some of the analysts who have been looking and staring at al-Qaeda for a long time. Right. And what I kept turning over in my head, and remember, this kind of was my nightly uh, go-to-bed ritual, you know, in my own mind, which was thinking through what could an alternative theory be? I mean, 
we had to con- challenge all the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom had been that bin Laden was separated from his family. He was in a cave. Maybe he was hooked up to dialysis. And, and it turns out he was living with his family in the suburbs, hooked up to cable TV. And right. so you kind of had to challenge your whole notion of what was real and what wasn't. But I kept thinking, well, who else could this be? Who else would be displaying this kind of security protocol? Why would they have such high walls in the front and on the back and on the balcony? I'm sorry. How involved in the red teaming were you during – I mean the red team Michael Morell ran the three red teams at CIA? Well, there were were many efforts to challenge the assumptions. In fact, every single meeting we had discussed this very question, which is what else could it be? There was – Michael Morell did you know basically the bulk of the analytic work – on this on this uh, operation, there was at a time also when Mike Leiter at NCTC was brought in to do a specific red team document and to posit, you know, again, what else could this be? And I was part of those discussions and obviously, you know, tried to soak in that analysis as mm-hmm. much as I could. But I just couldn't get my mind to a place where I could have a real alternative explanation for who would be there. Why would the guys who had been couriers, bodyguards, and gatekeepers for bin Laden who had been clear, why would they be acting this way with somebody else? Right. And I just felt over and over again that there was enough information here that justified this operation. I, I agreed with the president we shouldn't tell the Pakistanis about it. Um, the only thing in my mind that I kind of kept thinking through is, you know, what's the right course of action? And the COA, the course of action, was what we debated kind of over and over again. And and I was so confident, I was actually more in favor of COA 1, which was course of action 1, which was actually a B2 strike. Blow the hell out yeah, of it. Yeah, 16 2,000-pound JDAMs, 32,000 pounds of explosives on the target, obliterated, actually have no trace of them. Um, but I was convinced, you know, by those people in the 509th bomb wing at, at, at the Air Force and others who said, look, there's not going to be DNA evidence. We're going to pulverize this place into dust. The conspiracy theories will live on. And you're going to kill a lot of civilians that don't need to be convi- killed, not just the peop- not just the kids who live there, but also people in the surrounding um, uh, streets. And so we, I think we all aligned around this riskier path, but ultimately one that worked, which was the Helleborn assault that Admiral McRaven's forces conducted. You've talked a lot about how intelligence stuff has ended up in the media and how there's been a lot more need to have a good media relationship. Mm-hmm. And now you are you are on a lot of media. You can you know see you on a lot of different channels talking about these kinds of issues. My biggest pet peeve for like, and this is so minor, yeah. from the raid and the aftermath of the raid was the information got to the media before the president got a chance to announce it. I know that was a purposeful. But it seems no, that wasn't purposeful. Oh, it leaked out. In, well, no, I mean, if, just to, to go through the TikTok, I'm not sure yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. So, and and so, what I thought you were going to say was something different because there have been critiques of the amount of information about the operation that came out afterwards. Well, no, for me, I that something as monumental as this, yeah. I, I thought the president should be the one to announce it to the public. Well, so, and, well. He but did. Wolf Blitzer at 6 o'clock was saying bin Laden's dead. The president's going to tell us about well, it Well, actually, that's not exactly right. What happened was was that the White House press office did something that is almost unheard of in White House press relations on a Sunday night, which is they sent a note out to the press corps saying there's not a lid. A lid meaning there's not there, – we may have news tonight. Right. Now, why would the president be having a nationally televised address on a Sunday night if not for something – absolutely monumental, including like a military operation. 
And there was some speculation about what it could be, and I remember hearing some speculation that there had been an operation. But, you know, as I tracked it, and again, I was in and out of the Situation Room, um, as I tracked it, the president was the first person to really tell the nation. I mean, yeah, maybe 800,000 people watch CNN on a Sunday night, but t- it talked to the 320 million Americans right. um, on all the networks live. Um, that was the president of the United States, and he was the one who said that we had conducted the operation. It was ours, which, by the way, heretofore, it was a, a covert operation, which was the hand of the United States was was to be denied unless the president declassified it, which he did, of course, in that in that uh, announcement from the from the East Room, and he told the the world that this operation was ours, it was justified, and it was success- successful. Let me ask you, shifting gears a little bit, to, about Gina Haspel, because there's been a lot of conversation about her. I read uh, an article that you wrote on NBC's website on the kind of their op-ed area, um, and, and quite simply, as you mentioned, she by far is the most her resume makes her one of the most qualified CIA directors of all time. You know, go back to, I guess, Helms to have somebody that went yep. from the very beginning all the way up. I mean, Brennan started at CIA, but he bounced back and forth. Yep. I, what I loved when she was announced is that if you Googled her, there weren't a bunch of pictures of her. That actually, I don't mean to call out our social media people, but they actually posted the wrong person when mm-hmm. they said Gina Haspel had been announced. That, to me kind of shows a lot of the kind of quiet professionalism yes. of this new director. Well, Gina is, is, a, uh, is a career intelligence officer who has dedicated her life uh, in the service of her country. And, and her particular kind of public service required that, that anonymity, that clandestinity. It's, you know, every director has kind of had a different model. Some have been very public. Some have been members of Congress, and including my old boss, Leon Panetta. Some have, so some have been politicians. Some have been sort of more Washington uh, uh, professionals who have been presidential appointees. Some have been coming out of the actual uh, analytic or operational ranks of the agency. There's no one model that works. I do think it, it is a particular attribute of hers that makes – that made her and continues to make her uniquely qualified to lead CIA at this time. She, uh, she, you knew that in Gina you were not going to get anyone pushing a political or partisan agenda, and particularly given concerns about the Trump administration and really Donald Trump's own relationship with the intelligence community and his relationship with facts and the truth and nonpartisan, nonpolitical analysis, that. It, I think it was heartening to many of us who have worked in the intelligence community and who care about these issues that he nominated uh, someone who had come from the career ranks, right. someone who knew the mission of CIA well and who was going to be willing, if pushed by him, uh, to push back. Well, I was going to ask if you think she's done well, but we've heard next to nothing out of her office, which I guess is the point. I guess it answers that question of the fact this kind of quiet professionalism where Mike Pompeo, there was a lot of information coming in. There's a lot of back and forth conversation within the media about whether or not he's doing the job he's supposed to be doing or if he's too political. This has just been quiet professionalism coming from the director's office. It's it's hard to know and, and most directors kind of are in the same mode and Panetta was in this mode too, which was which was there's not going to be a lot of things to talk to the press about. You know, you may have a speech now and then, you may give one or two television interviews or, you know, maybe a couple of press roundtables. But but you know, on a scale of one to ten, when you're CIA director, your press profile 
is going to be, or or your affirmative press profile is going to be fairly low, you know, one or two. Yeah. Um, and I think you know there've been there's been a lot of other news, and is long again, it's it's kind of by design because her mode is not to be in the press, but it's also frankly just what else is going on. I mean, if there right. have been a number of issues where, for example, the intelligence committees have been focusing on something at CIA quite a bit, and she was out there forced forced to testify, forced to answer questions in public in the way John Brennan was when Diane Feinstein and others challenged the way CIA was responding to the uh, oversight of the interrogation program, right. then naturally you're going to be in the news. And, and I just want to, I want to caution everybody because I know there's sort of this conventional wisdom that when you're out of the news, it's good. When you're in the news, it's bad. It's not necessarily true. If there's news about you and you're not in it and you're not setting the record straight, that can be bad. It can right. be bad for the agency's mission. It can be ba- could be bad for morale. It could be bad for actually correcting the record about CIA. And the only thing worse than than you know than uh, a lot of press about CIA, uh, and that's not good for operational perspective. But the only thing worse is is inaccurate information about right. CIA. Because believe it or not, the a lot of our partners around the world actually read the press and they read what's happening at CIA. And they, it's important for them to understand that CIA is relevant, CIA is functional, CIA continues to be professional, CIA calls it as it sees it, and that CIA has the confidence of policymakers both in the White House, at the departments and agencies, and in terms of the congressional piece as well. You mentioned something that I want to hit on, and then I'll let you go. I know we have busy days ahead of us. Um, The big criticism when Gina Haspel's name was announced uh, was her role in the Enhanced Interrogation Program. And and whether or not it was even there. There's a lot of bad information that came out about that, including Philippine black sites and things that were proven wrong but were announced to millions of people before that. But I want to ask you about the big, the big question here is that the destruction of the tapes. And you've spoken on that multiple times in the past. And I just want to get your opinion for you know, our listenership, Hannah, because you have a very interesting perspective because – most of the people who are self-identified as Democrats, who have worked for the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. who come from things from the left perspective, tended to be more critical of her role working directly for Jose Rodriguez, who's a bit uh, – I think he's fantastic. He's a great guy. But at the same time, he's somebody who is certainly polarizing when it comes to politics. And, and, and your opinion on this somewhat surprised me, but I, it shouldn't have when I'm thinking about it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well – when I was Democratic chief counsel, I, I, I actually led the investigation of the tapes destruction issue. And I should say that the committees didn't know about the tapes destruction issue until Mark Mazzetti of the New York Times began to call the committee and say, I'm working on a story about this. And, and so at first, I think the initial issue was sort of a major process foul, which was why hadn't the agency told the committees that these tapes of the interrogations had been destroyed? Um, so, of course, we began to – the right response was to launch an investigation, which we did. Um, it turns out that the investigation went pretty far down the field, but ultimately we had to yield to what was happening at the Justice Department, which was a criminal investigation into whether or not the destruction of the videotapes. But ultimately, the, the conducted, the conduct, how, how the rendition, detention, and interrogation program was conducted, whether any federal laws, criminal laws, were violated – that was an investigation that was led by John Durham, an assistant U.S. attorney. And at the end of the day, they concluded, having convened grand juries and looked at the, all the evidence, that, that basically no laws were broken, both in the destruction of the tapes and also in the, in the RDI program. But um, you know, my view, having looked at this, was that 
Gina was, you know, she was working in the front office. She didn't make the decision to destroy the videotapes. That decision was made by, by her boss. She did send the short, uh, I don't know if it was a two-sentence cable, basically saying that Jose had made the decision that the destruction of the tapes was authorized by the field element where the tapes were. Um, but it wasn't her decision. Mm-hmm. wasn't her call. And she wasn't depicted on the videotapes. It's not like she was you know, trying to save her own uh, face from being revealed. And ultimately, I think, you know, Jose's decision to do this was motivated, and we talked to him, of course, many times, his decision to do this was motivated by his deep concern that had those videotapes leaked, that it would give al-Qaeda a huge propaganda win, but more fundamentally, it would jeopardize the physical security and safety of CIA officers who were depicted on the tapes. And whatever you think of the decision to ultimately destroy them, you can't kind of quarrel with that uh, sensibility that Jose had. And so I just thought it was unfair to say, see, you know, Gina Haspel, you've served your country, you've served CIA, you've, um, you've been asked to do extremely difficult things. Um, you've said publicly that you, of course, agree with the decision that CIA will never have an enhanced interrogation program as long as you're CIA director or have anything to do with the agency. And yet you're going to somehow be denied the job of CIA director because you were in the front office and you sent along the cable that Jose had asked you to send right. along. So, you know, that's kind of the way I, I, I thought about it. But look... Um, I think, you know, as the history of all this period is written, I think what we'll learn is that, um, is that um, many officers inside CIA, some of whom are still serving, um, grappled with these issues. Some of them, many of them, you know, tried to do the right thing. Um, some of them uh, exceeded the guidance that they were given. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the right decision overall was the decision that President Obama made when he was inaugurated, which was, let's end this program, let's never have it again, and let's get CIA out of the business of having unilateral interrogations of terrorist detainees. We have a lot we'd love to talk about. We'll have you come back at some point in the future so we can spend more time doing it. But for now, Jeremy Bash, thank you for so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you so much. It's great to be on SpyCast. Thanks, Vince. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.